Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 307 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a great conversation with one of our regular contributors, attorney Michael Harris, the director of the Wildlife Law Program for the organization Friends of Animals. And Michael and I discuss monarch butterflies, whaling, pollinators, pesticides, Rachel Carson, corporate political influence. We talk about extremely rare goats in Afghanistan and status symbol eating and a few other interesting items too. A great conversation with Michael Harris today on the program. We have an EWSA called Oklahoma and an essay by the great John Gould titled Going to Hall and a poem called Rachel. All of this, as is always the case, will be imbued, infused, with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. Thanks so much for being with us. Let's get to it. Episode 307 of Troubadours and Tours. Get out of bed Put another log on the fire for me I made some breakfast and coffee Look out my window, what do I see? Crack in the sky and a hand reaching down to me All the nightmares came today And it looks as though they're going to stay coming to no room for me no fun for you I think about a world to come where the books were found by the gold ones written in pain written in all by a puzzle man who questioned what we came here for all the strangers came today and it looks as though they're here to stay Faces in golden rays. Don't kid yourself, they belong to you. 
They're the start of a calming race The earth is a bitch, we finished our news Homo sapiens have outgrown their use All the strangers came today And it looks as though they're here to stay Oklahoma. The sun also rises for the people in tow who do not give a rat's hind quarter for the monarch butterfly, or simply think not of the Menke whales off the coast of Japan. Why should some guy in Brooklyn give a hoot about ships with harpoons looking to bring ample amounts of blubber to Reykjavik? Would it not seem extraordinary for the folk of Mount Vernon to reflect on those monarch butterflies in California? Do their pollinating skills really affect them anyway? Or is it more of a prescient set of circumstances for the good people of the southern Missouri Ozarks because they count on a seasonal blast of color and flutter from those ephemeral beasties? In Oklahoma, the notion of whale hunts might resonate divine with the people of the First Nations who were pushed there because they understand ancient cultural tradition. In the mountains of Pennsylvania, up the range through Vermont, New Hampshire, and into Maine, we simple folk of the old world in this newer nation wonder how and when the songs of nature will remain the same. As, still in the distance, the glory of Muir's wild cathedral instinctively beckons our souls into the vastness of its deep challenges and unconditional sustenance. Still, my love will 
but it will not work Cause still, our love will be received Better yet still, my heart is in need of release Oh yeah, still, my love will be received Michael, is that you? Michael Harris. How you doing, EW? It is. Oh, it's good to have you on Troubadours and Rock On Tours again. Looking forward to talking with you. Great. Yes, uh, me too. It's been a little while. Yeah, it's been about five months or so. It's the first time we're talking in 2019, and uh, we're going to get into a little bit about monarch butterflies and a little bit about whale hunting. And uh, first, though, I want to let people know who have not heard your segment. You are a regular contributor, I'm proud to say, on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And Michael is the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals, a great organization. He literally is fighting the man to save and to protect habitats and other living species. Is that a good characterization? That is, and I think uh, with the current administration, fighting the man brings a whole new sense of meaning to it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. I thought we were better, at least, you know, not all, not never, not ever really that great. But geez, I never thought we were this bad, you know, having having what's his name represent us. Uh, yeah, you're right. Good point. Yeah. Uh, but let's uh, let's get to something much more beautiful. That monarch butterflies now. You know, how are the monarch butterflies doing? Well, they're not doing as well as we can hope. Uh, there has been some reports uh, in major newspapers uh, in the past few weeks uh, that the, um, the annual count of monarch butterflies is in. And it was worse than expected, particularly uh, in the West population, the uh, California population. Um, you know, we have... Um, we have seen a dramatic decrease in monarch butterflies across the nation, um, and there's a there are populations in both the east of the United States as well as the western United States. Um, uh, a few decades ago, we saw drastic drops in their population, and about uh, eight or nine years ago, some real efforts were put into place to try to turn that around, and there had been some progress being made, particularly in the east coast. 
but it looks like we've lost ground again. And a lot of news outlets, including the New York Times, is wondering if we're seeing the beginning of the uh, extinction of monarch butterflies, um, if not throughout the country, certainly in the western United States. So bad news all the way around for a really amazing species. I mean, butterflies are amazing. I think most people could connect with them because of their beauty and their sort of tie you to your spirit. But they're also extremely important uh, indicator of the health of our ecosystems. That was my next question. You know, why uh, is this such an important issue? Well, I think it tells us a lot about what we're doing to the environment. Um, you know, we're destroying the types of um, uh, habitat that is necessary for not only um, butterflies, but many pollinators. So, you know, milkweed uh, and other natural grasses are being destroyed because of our, not only our land use decisions to, you know, convert them over to development, but more importantly to our application of pesticides and herbicides throughout the landscape. And it's having these unattended consequences of also destroying the types of habitats that are useful for pollinators. And so, you know, we've heard this in the news recently about the, you know, bees and other pollinators being threatened. And I think the monarch butterflies at great indicator of that actually becoming um, a real a real problem. It's also important because monarch butterflies throughout their life cycle um, provide food sources for a lot of other species. And monarch butterflies are some of them, were at one point, some of the most abundant insect species in many parts of the country and um, were a very important food source for all kinds of bird species in particular. And so when we see a loss of, of um, butterflies and other pollinators, we have to start to worry about the food chain and how that's falling apart. Yeah. And as you mentioned, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very crucial part of a, a very dynamic um, ecosystem. So one, one of those crucial parts not being there or diminishing is going to affect the whole. Uh, now, I, I, I understand why it's a big deal, uh, besides the fact that they're beautiful. But, you know, can you tell me why is it happening? What, what, what's, what's causing this decrease in, in population of the monarch butterflies? Well, there's really three main reasons. Uh, one is pretty much the reason we see a lot of species become threatened or extinct, uh, and that is simply that we are utilizing their habitat for our own needs. So we're converting their habitat into uh, agricultural uses, or we're converting it into residential and urban and suburban uses. So that's, that's always a problem. But um, that doesn't mean that um, the butterflies and other pollinators would be uh, going extinct just because of our land use conversions. It's not, it's not the only problem they face. Um, it clearly is the application of pesticides and herbicides that poses the biggest threat right now, particularly in rural areas because these types of chemicals are dispersed in large amounts and sort of indiscriminately. You know, aerial spraying of pesticides, aerial spraying of herbicides can have effects to habitat 
many, many miles away because that drift in the wind. And I think what we're seeing is that a lot of these species are either being directly killed off because of the pesticide application, so it's killing them indirectly, or with herbicides that are used to control weeds in uh, rural and agricultural areas, those herbicides are ending up in places that have habitat like milkweed, which is essential for these butterflies. And so... We know that without milkweed, the, butter, the monarch butterfly really has no chance of continued existence. So we have to protect that habitat. And, you know, Rachel Carson comes to mind, you know, a, a yes. silent spring. Ha, have we made no gains since she clearly showed us the negative ramifications of herbicides and pesticides? Well, if anything... Those companies are now more politically connected and have invested more to protect their products. I mean, some could say that Rachel Carson caught those pesticide companies off guard and they weren't politically ready for um, defending their, their economic value of, that, of those products. So with Rachel Carson, it was the product DDT primarily. You know, since then, we have seen these companies put in just a tremendous amount of resources, lawyers and lobbyists, to try to fend off criticism of their products. We saw this um, at the beginning of the Trump administration. There were a number of pesticides that were under heavy scrutiny by the Environmental Protection Agency, and the writing was on the wall that they were likely to be pulled off the market. And within just a couple months of um, Trump appointing a basically a pro-pesticide EPA administrator, all those rules were scrapped. And so politically, we're, we're completely 100% um, uh, turned around from when we were at in the 60s, where we had politicians and regulators willing to accept the science and try to act to try to prevent some of the negative impacts, you know, DDT killing bald eagles and other, and other uh, bird species was something that we could you know, we could see our politicians back then taking a stand on. And unfortunately, now we're really having just the opposite. We're fighting our own agencies to try to address this stuff. I will say that, you know, um, President Obama had laid out a, um, a plan for um, addressing the scientific concerns over the loss of pollinators. And that plan, unfortunately, wasn't really developed until late in his second term. And once the presidency was lost, um, this new administration has pretty much scrapped it. One of my colleagues said they were looking at the pollinator website set up under the um, Obama administration, and it's still stuck with the last update of sometime in 2016. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like lost in time. Yeah. It exists, but it has, you know, no one's doing anything. Well, hopefully, after the next presidential election, someone will go back and restart it. It's not it going to happen now. It is definitely probably one of the, you know, setting aside the, the concerns over the catastrophic, catastrophic effects of climate change, it is clearly one of the most pressing environmental issues facing us. I mean, we depend on pollinators um, for our own food source. And losing these animals, not only, you know, monarch butterflies have a spiritual place in the world, I think, but from a practical standpoint of butterflies, bees, and other pollinators, we can't afford to have a planet that's devoid of these species. It's, it just makes no sense that we're so short-sighted. Um, 
you know, I, I, I talk to you a lot about other animals, wolves and elephants, and there's a lot of reasons why people love those species and would want to protect them. But the argument for protecting pollinators is so much stronger. It's protecting ourselves and exactly. our future and our kids' future. Exactly. Well put. We're talking to Michael Harris, attorney Michael Harris. He is the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals. And uh, you're in Denver, right? Or right outside? We're right outside of Denver. Actually, yeah. uh, one of the few places in the country that monarch butterflies don't often visit. So <laughs> Too cold, perhaps? I don't know. Too cold and a little bit high in the elevation. Yeah. Um, you know, they're seen throughout most of the country, but unfortunately not here very often. Well, you, you mentioned, Michael, climate change uh, a moment ago. Does that have any uh, influence over the decrease in population of monarch butterflies, do you think? I think we're still really just learning that. Um, you know, the interesting thing about climate change is that it can both cause habitat loss, but also habitat gain. So, you know, it's possible that where places get too dry and too hot, um, you may end up seeing, you know, milkweed and other pollinator habitat being lost. But you could also see it being gained in places that are warming. Um, you know, we, with um, a number of bird species, for instance, the Audubon Society has documented that um, the habitat niches for birds tend to be going both more north and higher in elevation. So species that maybe once were found in New Mexico and southern Colorado are being found in Colorado and um, Idaho because the weather changes and is allowing them to adapt. Likewise, species that maybe were once only found at 8,000 feet in the Rocky Mountains are now being found at Ten or eleven thousand feet, because there's longer periods of of um, uh, warm climate at that that altitude. So we really don't know. And I think with uh, monarch butterflies, because of their dependency to milkweed, it really will depend on whether or not climate change it starts destroying that habitat directly, or whether it allows for milkweed to be um, cultivated and planted um, in places maybe like Colorado. Um, in the future. So, and that is, by the way, one, one potential um, um, hope that we have is that because the loss of the butterfly is primarily tied to the loss of milkweed habitat, we know how to replenish that. You could purchase milkweed in many nurseries and plant it in your own garden, and that's very helpful. And we could, we could start putting um, land aside and cultivating milkweed. So there is ways we could address this. Obviously, we need to stop using so many of these chemicals that are causing the problem. But once we do that, we can start planting this habitat again. That's hopeful it is. And, you know, I also understand that people are thinking about enacting or triggering the Endangered Species Act to protect the monarch butterflies. Have you heard anything to that effect? So there is a petition by a number of scientists and conservation groups to list the monarch butterfly. And Fish and Wildlife Service did find the petition had merit and has initiated a, an investigation. And we do expect to hear on that in June or sometime early summer, late spring this, this year is the anticipation. Um, many folks believe, though, that the agency wants to avoid that and instead has been focusing on 
research studies um, trying to find ways for, as I mentioned, to promote habitat growth, promote milkweed growth. And so we'll see. Um, the hope is that there's either going to be an extremely strong, well-developed, and hopefully well-funded plan to protect um, habitat, or if not, then we need a listing of under the Endangered Species Act because that will trigger um, a lot of mandatory requirements that could help the butterfly. Well, that plan that you mentioned, who would put that together and who would facilitate it? Well, the one thing about pollinators and butterfly and monarch butterflies that I think is in their advantage that we don't see with a lot of other species goes back to what I said earlier. You know, this isn't like wolves or elephants where, you know, there's a there are a lot of people who love them and there's a small amount of people who really study them. Um, because of the importance of pollinators to humans and to our long-term survival, there's a pretty large group of of scientists out there who want to tackle this problem, more like on the magnitude of people wanting to tackle climate change. So Fish and Wildlife Service has been able to tap into not only the normal environmental conservation groups that are out there, but a lot of groups that are solely focused on and have been put together over the last few years to try to protect pollinators. And they draw from the universities, of course, and some industries, some ag folks and others. Obviously, they're countered by a group of people from the pesticide industry that are trying to, to you know, diminish the value of that work. Yeah, they're just trying to make America great again, though, you know. <laughs> yeah, rich again, I guess. Yeah, right. Anyhow, uh, let's uh, shift gears to whaling. I know uh, you wanted to talk about whaling, and I do too. Uh, Japan is making some very crucial uh, decisions. Yes. You know, this is an interesting one, right? Because I think that for most um, of us, and I would imagine with your listeners, you know, whales have been sort of an off-limit species, uh, you know, in our minds for a long time. I mean, you know, Moby Dick was a pretty ancient book for most of us. Yep. <laughs> and we, you know, the whaling industry seems to be something that we put behind us, and we have in this country. We don't do uh, any whaling in, in, in most European countries, not all, but most, and, and the United States. And, you know, we have seen whales not only as an animal that we almost completely wiped out because of whaling, but also one of the animals that we now consider to be as intelligent as we are and 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 sort of one of those species i think that we're starting to put up there on this special level of hmm you know maybe they have these lives that we should sort of consider and give respect to right and right we, you know we've known this with the use of whales in in um, entertainment industry, along with maybe other animals like dolphins and chimpanzees and others. So, yeah, I think it's surprising, but, you know, there has been a small but rather well-financed descent to this position. Japan has always been the one that I think gets the most media attention because they're, they sort of have a lot of audacity to, like, sort of, like, just acknowledge that they want a whale and they have used this argument that they're doing it for scientific research for some years now 
Um, and now they're willing to just say, forget it. It's not science at all. We just want to kill these things. We want to harvest their meat. And they have taken a stand that they're no longer going to abide by international commitments um, to protect whales and that they are going to do full-fledged commercial whaling within their waters. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Is it because it's such a huge part of their culture, you know, uh, having whale meat and maybe, I, I'm not sure if there are other accoutrements that they they construct from, from uh, what they get out of a whale? Or is it uh, is it just easily accessible or I, I'm not I mean they're not into red meat they're not into vegan lifestyles what what is it well so interestingly when you look at you know surveys of like the appetite for whale meat in Japan many would argue that at least on its face, it's at an all-time low, that there's very little appetite for whale meat among the Japanese public. And at least publicly, people aren't willing to say, oh yeah, this is something that I enjoy consuming and that I crave or that I preferred over beef or any other animal. Um, They really don't acknowledge it. But there clearly is a very strong tie to this delicacy and sort of maybe one's past cultural history or wealth or simply being able to, you know, say, hey, you know, I've achieved a status where these types of things tell people who I am and when I serve it or something like that. And it's not just in Japan. There is somewhat of a of a group of connoisseurs who consider it a delicacy in Norway and Iceland and Greenland and even in Canada. Yeah, and I think and this in, is one in Iceland, right? In Norway, they still they whale, right? At present, well, they have in the last couple of years capitulated to international pressures and have um, virtually reduced their uh, whale haul down to zero. Um, but this move by Japan raises questions of whether those two countries in particular might follow suit now. Ah. And um, so we had really thought we were heading in the right direction by getting um, global consumption down to just really the few dozen that Japan was claiming for scientific purposes over the last couple of years. And now that could go up to hundreds um, because of this new decision. And our big concern is because, because it is one of those delicacies that people tend to not want to admit publicly because of the whaling controversy, that there's actually a lot of demand out there that is being fed by the black market and that Japan's decision could you know feed that market and that this meat is going to be seen in in these other countries. We know for a fact that restaurants in the United States have been busted for selling whale meat illegally. We know that whale meat has been sold illegally through the black market on the Internet in the United States. So because it is one of those, like, it's weird, right? It's like culturally taboo, but it's also something that sort of, 
is it, whether it's tied to their their historical culture or their or their wealth, um, they're they're not giving up. It's and yeah, it so, is. It is strange. I mean, like we're talking the day before Valentine's Day. This will air after Valentine's Day, but it just makes me wonder if if some rich person wants to impress their date, they get a plate of whale put in front of them. Is that is, is it right? Yeah. Well, you know, and uh, you know, it, it, you're, you by the time this airs, many people will have seen the story, right? Of that guy who just paid all that money to kill that like extremely rare goat in Pakistan, right? I, I mean, I think this is the same phenomenon, right? You, if you can afford it, then you, and it makes people think uh, impressed with you in some way. Then you, you know, you sort of are willing to like circle around the cultural taboos to do it. I mean, it's and, not about a health thing. It's not about. You know, it gives you this unbelievable, uh, great feeling or makes you have a longer lifespan. It's just about, it seems to me, and it's not about taste either. It's just status and maybe cultural, uh, and a cultural sort of connection to to uh, a tradition of some sort. I think that is uh, completely right. Uh, I've never heard of any, um, and, you know, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I've never heard of any health benefits from it. It's certainly not like we have seen, like maybe like with rhino horns, some type of religious connection to it or some medicinal connection to its use. Um, this appears to be just something that uh, probably more than anything. Uh, and if we had a chance to really uncover who's using it, I'm, I'm sure it's tied to status and wealth. Now, are you doing anything, your organization, Friends of Animals, uh, to, to try to, uh, I guess, persuade Japan or stop them uh, from, from whaling again? Well, we're just taking a look at this. And there are a couple options that we are considering. Um, one, of course, is trying to get these. Uh, these are supposedly mainly one type of whale. Uh, the mink whales are the whales that are primarily um, – being harvested worldwide they're not considered endangered but because japan is primarily going to be uh, doing this activity within what they consider their economic zone where they you know their territorial economic waters we are we are considering whether or not we might be able to get a federal u.s esa listing that designates that population as threatened by by this commercial harvesting, and that, why that might have some um, um, advantage to it is, you know, having another country say what you're doing is leading to uh, the extinction of a species has its own stigma that you that they will have to address in the political international political scene. But also, it, it could help us with the black market aspect, um, making the transport of it not only to the U.S., but through the U.S. into other countries, something that we could, we could tackle legally. So that's one way to do it. Um, and the other way we're doing it is there are actually some provisions tied to the U.S. Marine Mammal Protection Act that gives the uh, United States Secretary of Commerce authority to sanction countries that don't comply with international laws um, protecting marine uh, marine animals, it's 
obviously difficult to get the U.S. Secretary of Commerce uh, under any administration to do something like that. In fact, it's it, even though there have been petitions, it has never been done in the past. Um, but it certainly is an avenue for us to fight. And we have to look domestically because, you know, we we can't really make Japan rejoin these organizations. I mean, they're an independent country and their laws aren't going to be helpful here. So we just have to find ways to keep the pressure on them both internationally and from the United States, which has a lot of clout. And um, so we intend to pursue both of those and see if we can't, you know, keep this issue from not just going away. And I and I know Greenpeace and other activists will be out there on the high seas trying to do something about it as well, which is fulfilling to me. Attorney Michael Harris here, our regular contributor on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And uh, it's always a pleasure talking with you, Michael. I, I really respect and support the work that you and your colleagues are doing. Uh, and I, you know, I wish we could talk longer. Uh, our our time is up this go-round, but we will be talking again in uh, in the not-too-distant future. I do want to ask you, are, are you a Denver Broncos fan? <laughs> From time to time, I can be a Denver Broncos fan, yes. Did you hear something today that brought that to your mind? Well, or? no, just from where, you know, where I am right now in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, the new head coach for your Broncos and the offensive coordinator are both from my town. You know, Fangio really? and and Munchak. The Fangio's the head coach and Munchak his offensive coordinator. They're both from Scranton area. So I just thought that'd be Yeah. Tell them That's awesome. Tell them you know, you know the shoemaker's son and they'll go, "Oh yeah, yeah." Well, the reason I thought you brought that up is I literally had just saw an email like minutes before you called that the Broncos are trading for Joe Flacco. Oh, wow. That's big. <laughs> yeah, so. Well, that's he, he might be an endangered species soon, so I guess. <laughs> well, he's, he'll come out here to go to pasture, I guess. Right, exactly. <laughs> again, Michael, it's always a pleasure talking with you, and uh, I look forward to talking with you again. Enjoy the rest of uh, the winter. Thank you, EW. I'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Bye. Thank you. 
John Gould. For going on a week, I've been waking promptly at 2.45 a.m. I don't get up, but I look at the luminous dial, say, Good luck, Harold, and go back to sleep. One swallow doesn't make a summer, but one trip to Hall seems to make that much of a lobster man out of a Highlander. Harold Jameson is a lobster man, and for some time he had been saying, you ought to get up some morning and go haul with me. So long as it was some morning, I was agreeable. But now, Harold said, I'll pick you up tomorrow. I set my alarm at 2.45. Harold tooted his pickup at 3 and were off down Muscongas Bay to attend six traps in the vicinity of Mosquito Rock. I will be glad when I get this 2.45 stuff out of my system. Maine lobstermen are not the heave-ho and breaking-wave kind of mariner. They respect their ocean to the point of timidity. It has been said the men who never fear the sea are its victims. The cautious and prudent give it never a chance. The reason for pre-dawn hauling of lobster pots is in tune with this. On the long average, the Maine ocean is calmest on the tail of night and before the morning breezes up. Each day's decision about going to haul is made in the darkness on the wharf. So after sniffing and with many a, well, I don't know, Harold decided maybe it would hold calm long enough to get his six traps by Mosquito Rock. Mosquito Rock is some seven miles outside. This was the morning of May 29th, so the full moon was a day old, and it didn't hurt the scenery a mite. Harold had his running lights on and had tuned in the fisherman's band on his two-way radio. 
We were not alone on the ocean, and it was fun to listen to the chit-chat of lobster men like us on their wave out. We rounded a can at the harbor mouth, came through a channel between islands, and picked up the lights of Port Clyde on our left, the lights of Pemaquid on our right, and 15 miles straight ahead, the Monhegan Island Lighthouse. Revolving at 30-second intervals, it became Harold's course, and his engine thrummed musically. He figured an hour and a half to sunrise. Not quite that to Mosquito Rock. Harold is what we Mainers called an old woman. This has nothing to do with sex, but means a devotion to detail, a place for everything and everything in its place. Other fishermen will tell you he isn't a foss taller, but will admit his methodical routine saves him time and effort. As we approached Mosquito Rock, he began getting ready. A tub of alewives was disposed by his left foot, and he threaded three on his bait iron, a long steel needle. He laid his spectacles on his shelf, hauling wood spray them opaque instantly. He set out his box of wooden pegs, which render lobster claws clampless, and tossed in his gauge. Main lobsters must all be legal lengths. Then he hauled on his neoprene fisherman pants, an exhibition of agility and a rolling boat considering that he was already wearing his hip rubber boots. There, he said, and we began looking for his first pink and green pot boy. A main lobster trap is a slated crate that lies on the ocean floor. The line to it is called a pot warp and at Mosquito Rock, Harold fishes in 30 fathoms of water. A few feet above the trap is a plastic float that keeps the line from snarling about the trap. A second float is called the toggle, and its purpose is to take up slack when the tide ebbs. The third float on the end of the warp is the pot buoy, and this is painted in bright colors in each fisherman's distinctive marking. The toggle may or may not be underwater. But as we were on a slack tide, it was now floating, and Harold gaffed his lines by the toggle. Out of sixty-five, he missed once, and he turned to see if I noticed his clumsiness. It was the look Esposito had the night he muffed the easy one. Maneuvering the boat to come alongside each toggle was, of course, routine with Harold, but the skill and beauty of it was exciting. Having no precious lobster license, I couldn't help him, so I watched him do his work according to his usual lonesomeness. They tell me Harold doesn't ask just anybody to go hauling with him. With his bait iron threaded, he was ready for number one. Up came the toggle. He made a turn on his winch. He adjusted his motor controls, threw the knob on his winch, and the warp tightened. When the pot breached, he grabbed it, pulled it into position, adjusted his controls again, and in seconds he had taken out his lobsters, cleaned away the crabs, winkles, old bait, and had transferred the new alewives to the bait string and the trap. Watching his depth finder, he swung about to put the trap back in the ocean just where he wanted it. Then, approaching his next trap, he re-threaded his bait iron, measured his catch, and hove back all but the keepers. He caught hundreds of lobsters, 
but only 44 from the 65 traps were legal to bring ashore. At $1.40 a pound, he paid for his bait, his fuel, and pocketed some $60, much of which would go to amortizing his boat and gear. It was noon when he came to the wharf, and 1 p.m. when he had breakfast. Harold does this every day, but it threw my Highlander schedules askew. Now, every morning when I wake at 2.45 a.m., and before I turn over, I meditate briefly on what a good time I had with him and console myself that a farmer's life isn't so bad in some waves.
Rachel. Rachel says that we need to pay attention to the birds. Simon says you need to follow the alpha males and females, perhaps into oblivion. Yet we all know, don't we, that it takes real courage and humility to truly be alive. Check out that buzzing beehive. I always 
And there you have it, episode 307 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our regular contributor, attorney Michael Harris, the director of the Wildlife Law Program for the organization Friends of Animals. I'd like to thank the great essayist John Gould and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, David Bowie, Citizen Cope, Marvin Gaye, Lobsterbox, Magnetic Fields, Allison Moore, and of course Branford Marsalis and Terence Blanchard too. It's so nice to have you with us. I'd like to thank all of our listeners in Washington State, in Missouri, in Illinois, in Oklahoma, in New York, in Brooklyn, in northeastern Pennsylvania, in Vermont, in Maine, in New Hampshire. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you listening. Until next week, let's enjoy this one. If you'd like to drop us a line, please do so. EWConundrum at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or FreeSpeak at WFTE.org. Allora, arrivederci. <laughs>